I'm sorry for the edit this time. It's going to suck. The Cambie Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. It's March 18th, 2022, and there are 211 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We're back. We're back after a extended session for the new arrivals. Yeah, I had a baby, or my partner had a baby. He came a little bit early, but he's been a bad sleeper, so I am still on, like, partial cylinders. Or whatever the electric car equivalent is. Half a rotor. For two signals. <laughs> well, I don't have a gas car anymore, so I need to update my analogies. Fair enough. We did have an episode a couple of weeks ago with the candidates who are running for one city. I hope listeners enjoyed that. We'll hopefully do similar episodes with the Greens, Cope, and Vision, and other any other parties who want to case their potential council candidates. Yeah, if any NPA applicants want to make their case to the public or any NPA board members, I guess, that listen to this show where we trash them consistently, they are more than welcome to do so. Email us at canbereport at gmail.com. Before we begin, though, we have to do our usual beg. Yes, or those of you who are have been missing the Canby Report for anyone who you think would benefit from some increased engagement into citizen journalism at the municipal level, please visit patreon.com slash Canby Report. Yeah, you go sign up at patreon.com slash Canby Report. We'll j- drop you in our very active Slack channel where even though we haven't been recording regular episodes, we have still been complaining about local politics nonstop. Yes, that's patreon.com slash Canby Report. Any amount you can give is appreciated. It does enable us to do what we do when we do it. And we will be doing it more often coming up to the election. So look forward to that in weeks and months to come. Let's start with a segment we've done, I think only once or twice before, but dunking on counselors and dunking on MDG specifically for tweets that make no sense or contradict previous tweets she may have said. It's a clunky title and we might refine it, but... (laughs) I'm going to stick with it. Uh, Yesterday afternoon, Melissa DeGenova tweets out, it wouldn't hurt for council to have a meeting or two where amendments to recommendations and council motions aren't permitted. Making a decision without twisting results into a political pretzel would be more efficient and transparent. What do you think? Hashtag Van Pauly. I think that sounds like the death of democracy, Matthew. It does sound like the death of democracy. It sounds sounds like she's encouraging decisions to be made behind closed doors or the end of debate. So really doesn't sound like the Melissa DiGenova of previous tweets. Some people on Twitter also got to pointing out there being some irony in this tweet based on, and I can't find the data to prove it because the Vancouver Open Data Portal doesn't list who moves amendments or who moves procedural motions or notably who does points of order that may make council inefficient and hard to follow. But there's some suspicion about who may be the worst offender of that. And I won't throw allegations around here, but it's within context. Part of the problem is that 
We just elected a, like we elected a council that was designed to snarl itself up. We didn't elect a council with a governing majority. It was not going to be efficient or particularly streamlined at any point. And this is just what we got. This is the democracy that we, we chose. So while it, it might've been easier for Melissa had two more NPA counselors been elected alongside her or had the NPA maintained a sense of cohesion during her entire term. It's not surprising that she is experiencing these things. Unfortunately, that's just the job you signed up for there. Indeed. One of the motions that amended staff recommendation was motions to amend the budget back in 2020. Actually, I imagine most budgets get amended by council as counselors, even in a majority situation, seek to bring forward their vision that may be slightly different than what staff did. Like staff do their best to try to reach what council tells them to, but we elect people to represent us and they have a duty to try to bring that vision through into the motions they do. So one of the amendments they did to a past budget was to reduce the amount of money the Vancouver Police Board had requested for policing operations in the city by $5 million. And this was in 2020, during the height of the pandemic, the city said it didn't have the money. There was increasing calls for nude focus and questioning of the expense that was being put to police. And the city said, all right, you got this amount last year, we'll give you that amount this year. You don't get the extra $5.7 million you want. And the police went and cried to the province. This is a mechanism that exists under the Police Act. Any police force that disagrees with the provincial budget or with the municipal budget that their council has set for them has the ability to apply to the province to overrule the municipal and elected government of a particular place and have the province effectively force the municipal government to change their budget allocation to suit the police force. That is what has happened now. Yeah, so Director of Policing Services Wayne Rideout commissioned a study into the policing in Vancouver and how much money they would need. This was carried out with a couple consultants, Peter Lapine and Peter Lockie, the two Peters. Between the three of them, Wayne Rideout is a former RCMP officer, Peter Lapine is a former RCMP officer, and Peter Lockie is a chartered accountant and lawyer by training. They basically take submissions from the Vancouver Policing, from the Vancouver Police Board, from the Vancouver Police Union. They also work with the City of Vancouver City Manager and Chief Financial Officer. They talk to Chief Constable Adam Palmer and his entire executive team. I'm pulling this just from the acknowledgments of the actual report, which we managed to get our hands on. So they talk to a lot of cops and ultimately decide that you know what? Police police could use that extra $5.7 million. This is just bad news for democracy, for one, for taxpayers, and for anyone who is hopeful that any kind of action to defund the police or enact police reform through the budget process, which is really the only oversight that council has over the police board, is, is going to be possible. It's tremendously disappointing. And amounts to effectively $350 per household in Vancouver that 
is going to have to be paid extra to the Vancouver Police Department. Yeah, Vancouver is kind of in a tough bind now because they'd have to find the money. It's legally required they pay this. And so it either has to come from an extra property tax hike in the subsequent years and probably from cuts in other sections of the budget. And one thing Francis Bula points out, and it's quite noticeable and telling as you read this report and go through it, it's 60 pages in total, is there's no consideration from the city side. This is entirely focused on, you know, what effect would depriving this money have on the ability of the police to operate at the level that effectively they want to. It basically just takes the police at their word of, all right, we want to do this, we want to do that. If we don't have this money, we can't do this and we can't do that. And it's, it feels like such a, you know, bought conclusion from the start at that point. The police say they need the money. They decide they need the money. They say, give us that much money. And there's no real consideration beyond what they've determined to be their own priorities. There's no space for the city to make submissions. There's no public making submissions. Yeah, this sounds like an excellent time to remind people that the police board is appointed by the province, but council appoints one member to it. So be on alert for the board application process. And if you feel you are qualified, you should apply to the Vancouver police force. Yeah, the other background of this is the province is still conducting a review of the police act. And we'll see if there is an effort to revise this process or make this at very least something, you know, average citizens can have an effect on because this is pretty demoralizing from that point of view. As Francis points out in one part of this, like imagine if the city engineering department who got a cut in 2020 was able to just say, mm, no, that's, that's not going to work for us. We'll actually just have the money. Or if the communications department or the mayor's office said, no, actually, we could use 20 more communication staff next year. And they just got them by forcing that taxation on. Like, this is taxation without representation. Absolutely. And while I suppose hope springs eternal, my suspicion is that the minister in charge of this is, is Minister Mark Farmworth. He is not going to be inclined to... Uh, introduce democratic reforms into this particular region of, of government. My suspicion is that if anything, they're just going to have the police set their own budget. <laughs> Remove the facade. Yeah. The end of the charade entirely. Uh, it, it would effectively be no different from the system we had now, other than being slightly more transparent in its iteration of the democratic control of police. So one question I had for you, Matthew, because I don't know if this would be feasible and it's politically not going to happen because I don't think there's the votes and will on council to do anything more here. But I'm wondering if there isn't some kind of opportunity for council to have tried to file for judicial review of this and to say, this is an unreasonable and biased report that I would, I think it would be a moonshot type case, but I don't even know if they could have grounds like the Police Act itself doesn't imagine anything like this, but I'm just wondering, like, could they sue if yes, they really they wanted to? This is an administrative decision. It's, it's a decision that's made above the city, but the city would be party to it. They definitely would have standing. They absolutely could sue for judicial review. It would be an uphill climb for sure, though 
like not being able to make submissions or, or contribute to the report in any kind of meaningful way is perhaps something that the courts would take into account. I would be shocked if such a, uh, a submission were to be successful, but I think it actually would be worth trying. If for no other reason than one, there is the slim chance that it could succeed. That's what I was thinking, right? It would, it would be a PR type approach. It would embarrass the province, if nothing else, which I, I think has value in its own right. And it, it might put some pressure on the province as they're reviewing the police act to change the way that they operate going forward. But like I said, for that to move forward, they would need the votes, which I don't think any of the NPA or ex-NPA members are likely to support which means they would need all of the progressive sides. And I think Kennedy Stewart is, based on our conversation with him in December, would probably let this die. Even maybe Pete Fry and Mike Weeb might also not be willing to fight it, which leaves you with Boyle, Swanson, and maybe Carr. Yeah, it's not enough. Even still, I think the councillor should bring this forward. If, if only to put the other councillors on the record, many of them are going to be running for re-election, so it's it's a worthwhile endeavor. Gene Swanson, this is what you're there. Yes. I may not agree with much you have to do on council, but this is literally the reason why I I think you're there. Like, you know, you, you've spent the entire time blocking the construction of a housing. For the love of God, do something for people. Well, speaking of blocking construction, let's talk about Adrian Carr. Yes. So Adrian Carr, a green councillor, former leader of the Green Party in BC, former deputy leader of the National Green Party, I believe, is incensed. She is appalled at the mayor's vote on parking, which we have covered extensively in previous episodes. And in her iration, she has mused about running for mayor. Yeah, she spoke with Francis Buell in a piece that's in the Globe and Mail that we'll link to in the show notes. She talks about the parking fee as one of the key planks of the climate policy of the city and how disappointed she was when he voted against it. She says, can I count on him? I don't think so. And it was unnecessary for him to vote that way. And she had even proposed amendments that might have worked to win his favor over, but it failed. And so... She's mulling this seriously. She hasn't said for sure because she is still considering the possibility of vote splitting, but she wants to make sure she can offer voters a choice they don't really have. Well, let me be the first to say, do it. <laughs> Jump on in there, Adrian. If, if for no other reason, then your analysis is correct. We apparently can't count on Kennedy Stewart to do the right thing with respect to the parking issue with respect to the climate issue, a long and drawn out process led to absolutely nothing getting done. And that was a tremendous blow to climate policy in this city. Do I think that this might lead to vote splitting? Yeah, probably it will. We have seemingly learned absolutely nothing from the 2018 election other than that was a lot of fun and we should do it again. I mean, it worked out great for us. The more, the merrier. Oh yeah, we had a ton of content and we have a ton of content this year as we try to keep track of all of these upstart parties, mayoral candidates, you know, ideologues who are trying to make their mark on the city. And as a first go at trying to help you, dear listeners and followers on Twitter, 
I put out a couple very hastily thrown together alignment charts based on some of the previous discussions we've had around urbanism versus socioeconomics, showing where the potential mayoral candidates would be and some of the political parties. And that generated quite a bit of discussion as people either said that people were too far left or too far right. Someone called Kennedy Stewart a communist because words have no meaning. Nope. I love this. And it, it, it kind of expands off of the work that you've done at a number of conferences, or at least at a conference where you presented the, the urbanism preservationist axis against the socioeconomic axis, showing where different counselors stand, where different candidates stood during the previous campaign. And I think that this is a, a useful tool because the major axis in Vancouver right now that people have to be voting on is whether or not they want to align themselves with preservationist or urbanist candidates. The long-running series, Charts on a Podcast, see them in your mind, returns. But if you wish to see this actually with your eye, please visit twitter.com slash report and just scroll down a little bit. We will have this up there for your viewing pleasure. Yeah, these are very... Like I said, first passes, I did these in paint. I think I'm going to work with Stuart Prest again and we'll develop some like questions, maybe a vote compass type survey to figure out where you fall on the axis and then use that to kind of do the political parties. The way I did it in the last election was I actually crowdsourced where people thought the parties would be rather than just kind of doing it from my gut. And maybe I'll do that again. So there will be surveys at some point showing up on our Twitter and on our website. So stay tuned for those. There's a lot happening in candidate news. People are running for these parties now. Yeah. And just a just a quick note on on the charts. My favorite part of this chart is the giant green blog that stretches all the way down from ultra preservationist to slightly urbanist for the Vancouver Greens owing to basically their well body voting record on on urbanism. I think I heard someone in, or someone replied to us on Twitter arguing that the green should be an even blurrier blob across even larger parts of the spectrum. And, they you know, I take this criticism constructively. So who is running? So last episode, we had a number of candidates from one city. Actually, most of the candidates, we only missed a few, submit within, I think it was 48 hours I gave them to send three-minute clips of their candidate statements. And then a few days later, they had their voting. So for council, one city members nominated, shockingly, Christine Boyle. She will be what? their candidate once again, as well as Matthew Norris, Iona Bonamy, and Ian Cromwell. For schools, they were acclaimed. It's Jennifer Reddy, Rory Brown, Kyla Epstein, Gavin Summers, and Krista Sigurdsson. One city's going hard on schools. If they win all of these, they will have a one city majority on the school board. And for parks, they're running Serena Jackson, T.L. Tillett, Kristen Rivers, and Caitlin Stockwell. Parks was actually a really contested race for one city. I think they had like six very talented people running for that. So congrats to those who won those nominations. It was pretty hard fought and pretty, pretty, in, the, pretty in the open. Lots of people campaigning on Twitter, sharing their endorsements. Was it fun to see? So the Greens have also announced council candidates. The voting will be April 2nd, but the member deadline is today. So if you are listening to this on the day it comes out, sign up. The Greens have announced that they are nominating candidates to run for the 11 seats on council. 
What exactly they mean by that is unclear because there are 10 seats on council. It might be they're open to having a... A mayoral candidate? Yeah, they might be open to having a mayoral candidate. Yeah, and that was the story we just talked about with Carr musing about mayor. Six candidates have put their names forward for the Greens. The three incumbents, Adrian Carr, Pete Fry, and Michael Weeb are in there, as well as Tom Digby, Devyani Singh, and Stephanie Smith. That race will continue as it as it rolls on towards the April 2nd vote. We wish all the candidates the best of luck and hope that they send in some information to us to share with our listeners. What I don't get about the Greens and Cope, who we'll talk about in a second, is neither of them have told us how many they're running. So they're having these nomination races in the next few weeks. But I don't know how many people the members will actually be voting for. Presumably, the Greens are going to nominate at least their three incumbents. And since they have the most brand recognition, could probably go for a full majority. One or two more at least. But yeah, do they nominate all six if they decide to run for a majority? I don't know. VDLC, you have one job here. Yeah. And and that is a question that I am like pondering in the back of my mind is what the VDLC is is doing to try and coordinate between these these disparate groups. Certainly it appears that one city has decided that they don't need the VDLC umbrella and are going to run great guns to try and take over council or like get a significant voting majority or voting minority on council. And to be honest, whether or not the VDLC actually had a positive impact on the last election is kind of up for grabs. They've already endorsed American or they did slow vision down a little. Yeah. And they've said Vision will not get an endorsement. Well, that's that's good, I guess. It's, I suppose, the Social Credit Party won't also. Like, dead parties don't get endorsements. It's not good for the people who are starting to put their names forward for Vision. True enough. But one party that may get an endorsement is COPE, who have started announcing their candidates. Their candidates were listed on March 9th, and they listed their membership deadline as March 10th. So if you wanted to sign up to vote for them, you had very little time, unless you were deeply involved in the COPE sphere. Their voting will happen on April 10th. They have three candidates for council, Gene Swanson, former NDP candidate Breen Willette, and Nancy Trigueros, who is the secretary or ex-co-secretary of COPE. For Perks, a number of candidates have put their names forward. Amar Bajikian, Gwen Giesbricht, Maria Hassan and Chris Livingstone. Giesbrecht's the current councillor on Parks, but notably John Irwin isn't on that list, and we'll come back to him. In school, Susie Ma and Rocco Trigueros have put their names forward. So yeah, John Irwin is not running for re-election with Cope to Park Board, and it turns out that just earlier this week, he announced he's given up his Cope jersey and he's donning a vision vancouver jersey of all things yeah why i'm not exactly sure but it's apparently because there is some internal disputes within cope some internal dynamics within that party that make his continued membership with them untenable yeah nothing's on the record from Irwin, as far as i know Irwin's background he's i believe he's involved in like labor studies at sfu so he's like classical left in that way. And so the jump to vision surprised a lot of people for where he would go. But what I've heard from at least a couple sources is that he was not 
happy and he did not feel like he was being treated or supported well by the executive of Cope. It seems from anyone who's been watching the party for the past three years that they sort of stopped existing on social media and as a communications vessel, as a political party. They have been meeting, they have been doing some of that. It seems like they are building things again, but it feels more insular than ever in many ways. And that can create a very toxic atmosphere that perhaps pushes some people out. And I'm speculating, but that seems like what's happened here, which doesn't bode well for the election for them. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good read on things. That's not the only candidate that Vision Vancouver might enjoy. Uh, Leslie Bolt has announced a Vision Vancouver run. The deadline for candidates for Vision Vancouver is March 25th, and their vote is going to be held on May 1st. Yeah, Leslie Bolt's fairly prominent Twitter commentator, PR specialist, former co-host of Call the Question podcast, as in that I think they're on hiat, permanent hiatus now, has been a long-time Vision champion, and so it's not surprising to see her announced for that party other than that party still existing. Like the thing that's interesting about Vision is they do have a lot of smart and talented people still interested in it. I just struggle to see how they'll gain grassroots traction. Like they might be able to get some money, get some press attention and make it look like a good campaign without having any of the actual people to vote for them. Yeah, I, I just don't think it's possible for Vision to like regain the kind of grassroots on the ground enthusiasm that they once had in the Gregor era. There was a substantial grassroots upswelling, but I think a lot of that energy has moved over to one city and to a lesser extent, the green. Let me play out this scenario though, for you, Matthew, and I'm kind of just building this in my mind as I talk it through. Imagine vision polls. Jody Wilson-Raybould for mayoral nomination, someone very prominent, or even if it's not her, someone like that, someone everyone in the city would know and have, some, at least on the left, have some positive feelings about, even if there are specific questions you could ask about Jody Wilson-Raybould. And we definitely will if she runs. Yeah. You know, that could bring a lot of attention in a way that like one city's attention was big on Van Pauly Twitter, but realistically, I think they had about 1300 members. Like that's nothing to laugh at, but it's also not the 50,000 people you need to get someone elected to council. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there is still space to activate a lot of people and just swallow up the media conversation. Like we are months out of the election. By this point, four years ago, Kennedy Stewart was still just like mulling running for mayor. Like we'd barely started the podcast four years ago. Yeah. This is right when we were starting it. So, you know, for those of you who've been with us this entire time, thank you for your support. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. Do I think that's possible? Yeah, of course I do. Especially, especially someone like Jody Wilson-Raybould who comes with her own set of, of people to support her. Like that, that can transform an organization from being a bit moribund and frankly, little less than moribund, maybe more dead than anything else to something like dynamic and able to contest an election, certainly not easily. And it, 
Mark Marison obviously has been finding this out himself. Running a mayoral campaign basically from nothing is a tall order and is going to take a considerable amount of, of both luck and political acumen as well as organizational heft to, to achieve that. But it's definitely within the realm of possibility. And it will make great content in any case. But speaking of Mark Marison, let's cover off some of the other parties that are out there because a few of them are also running ostensibly open nomination races. Although if Mark Marison does not become the mayoral nominee of Progress Vancouver, I will be shocked. I will eat my shoe kind of situation. Progress Vancouver is having their nominations on May 30th. Your deadline to join to run as a candidate is tomorrow. And if you want to sign up to vote in those races, you have to get on by April 23rd. The mayoral nominations are actually closed, but if you want to run for council, you have until April 9th. They are also going to nominate someone for Parks Board, School Board, and Electoral Area A. Good for them. You know what? Good, Good for them. <laughs> Metro Vancouver is an important board that doesn't get a lot of attention paid to it, but for things ranging from the preservation of industrial land to water to transit, it is important. And that electoral area A representative for which I ran once upon a time is a uh, automatic member of the Council of Mayors that governs TransLink and also sits on the Metrovan board. They are never a student and it is kind of sad that that happens considering they contain UBC and a huge proportion of the people that they represent would be students. And I, I encourage anyone who is listening, who is perhaps a grad student in planning out at sea to throw their hat in the ring or any, anyone really, I was, uh, I was, I think the most funny student when I was running. So team is also allegedly running an open nomination race for council. You have to join the party by April 16th to run or vote, and their nomination meeting will be on May 15th. Colleen Hardwick just won their mayoral nominee by acclamation. Surprise, surprise. If Colleen Hardwick, Adrian Carr, and Kennedy Stewart all run for mayor, at least we only have to deal with one of them in the next council. And I have not seen any word on how Team Kennedy Stewart, A Better City Vancouver, or the NPA will be selecting their candidates. No, though my suspicion is that the NPA is going to have their candidates selected by appointment by the board, as is their custom. As is tradition. Yes. There is some news, speaking of Mark Marison, that he has continued to put out policy on things related to his mayoral run, and he has put out some plans to make Granville more pedestrian-friendly. Yeah, he has a couple tweets here that he wants to transform a stretch of Granville into, quote, a pedestrian-friendly, family-friendly, all-weather-protected, well-lit, active street with a broader mix of restaurants, shops, nightclubs, etc., and he also wants to reintroduce more neon signs. The, now, the neon signs I love. Vancouver sign bylaw was amended in the 1980s, I believe, to effectively kill neon signs in Vancouver. Uh, there is still a great exhibition at the Museum of Vancouver about Vancouver's neon heritage. Vancouver used to be one of the cities with the most neon anywhere in the world. You could see it on everything from the Sun Building to every single bar and restaurant down the Granville Strip. And it it made for some very striking photography. Vancouver kind of thought that it looked trashy 
and decided that they were going to obliterate the, the neon signs. Uh, and so they amended the sign bylaw to effectively prohibit them. Now there are, are still ways around that. And, and certainly some signs have been grandfathered in, but the uh, es essence of it right now is that neon signs are, are prohibited. Would it make for a cool entertainment district to have neon signs? Yeah, I, I think it would. And I am impressed at this like little bit of minutia that nods to Vancouver's history. Yeah, I like, you know, I like that. I'm sympathetic to that. Overall, this is not a s super radical pitch in terms of where Granville Street's already headed, I think. Like the, I, the biggest question is what exactly he means by pedestrian friendly and all weather protected. Like, is he imagining something fully covered would be quite expensive. And the bigger challenge is if it's pedestrian friendly, where are we moving those buses? Are we going to permanently put the buses up and down Seymour and how, and you know, how many parking spots is that going to upset the local businesses? And is that the fight he wants to have there? And it also does decrease accessibility a little because right now the Granville corridor as a transit corridor is a pretty prominent stretch of where you can catch buses downtown easily. Yeah. The suspicion is that it would move the buses to Seymour and Howe. This is something that is already done on the entertainment nights, like Friday, Saturday nights, when, when buses move off this trip to give it over to pedestrians. I, I think it would be nice for Vancouver to have a fully pedestrian oriented street. Other cities have this. Calgary has Stephen Avenue. Ottawa has Spark Street that are open to pedestrians and, and primarily pedestrian oriented all the time. And it, it is something that I, I think a world-class city deserves to have. This is of course not the most groundbreaking of ideas, but it does kind of set the tone for what Marison's candidacy is about. It has a lot of these, like it, it's a, it's a candidacy full of like Easter eggs, basically like for, for people who, who are nerding out about municipal governance and, and municipal history. And, and I really. I'm just, I love the neon signs thing. That's, that's a big thing for me, but his campaign of course still faces a significant uphill climb to contest against the more established candidates of Kem Sim and Kennedy Stewart, as well as Colleen Hardwick and Adrian Carr. One thing the next mayor, whoever he or she is, will have to contend with is the Vancouver Aquatic Center and I guess funding the park board to actually finally deal with it as a couple nights ago. The, the side fell off. A, ch a chunk fell off of the building. Yeah. We've got our own version of Olympic Stadium now. A recreation space that is literally falling apart. It is now closed as the front section has fallen off and is going to require substantial repairs. So this is the facility at the foot of the Burrard Bridge in the West End. In 2014, the city staff looked at renovating the facility and estimated the cost of the project to be about $40 million, which is a significant chunk of change or eight involuntary police budgets. That's what I get to measure everything off of right now. How many involuntary police budgets Vancouver is going to be forced to spend on any particular project. I know the park board has been looking for a number of years at replacing and building a new facility, but that has been held up by budgetary constraints, as well as a number of concerns about where to put it and how to deal with, you know, neighborhood concerns and those kind of things. I feel like this should accelerate those discussions a little bit, but I'm not optimistic. No, not, not especially. And just remember, 
even if we got rid of the park board, you'd still need this city council to deal with it. Yes. Now, speaking of things to not be optimistic about, the city of Coquitlam is not holding a by-election to replace Benny DiZarillo, who was elected as MP in last September's election. They are now being sued for not holding that by-election because they didn't follow the law. Yeah. The Local Government Act is pretty clear that if someone, a councillor, resigns before the year of an election, the municipality has to hold a by-election. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it's like 25% of the term. And the city goes, well, it would cost $200,000 or something like that. So they passed a motion to write to the Municipal Affairs Minister to ask that the law be waived which is not a thing. Yeah, no, you can't waive a law. You'd have to have a private bill effectively in parliament to, to not do this. Like it, the law is the law and municipalities are still creatures of the province. They, they are as the police act reminds us. And it's so unusual that they would even think that this is possible, that they've just decided to not do it. Uh, and now they're being sued for it. So, like, the city's position is they never officially decided not to do it. They were waiting for permission to not do it, which is bullshit. But two private citizens, Neil Nicholson and Wayne Taylor, have launched this, you know, action calling for a court order to force it to happen. What really gets me is the Local Government Act does imagine that the minister could force a by-election to happen if the city seems like they're not going to. And the minister has not done that either. The minister's kind of just said, well, it's our position that the city should do it, quote, as soon as practical after a vacancy occurs, which definitely could have been any time between October and now. The Tri-City News piece Um, notes that there have been at least two by-elections in the province in that time. It's also like just patently absurd that a, a bunch of people who power is increased by not having a council colleague by having a vacant seat on council are the ones in charge of, of running or not running this council election. Like this shouldn't be within their ambit and it's not, it's not within their ambit. They're required to run this election. Give it all to elections, BC. Yeah. At this point, right. Democracy is dead apparently. And the province is not helping. And we end every show with a Vancouver and we thought that Today would be an appropriate time to share with you some of the interesting history of the early days of the Vancouver Police Department. Now, the Vancouver Police Department was founded in 1886 when Vancouver's first chief constable was appointed. That chief constable was named John Stewart. He was the only police officer when he was appointed. He was appointed on May 10th, 1886. One month later, the Great Fire of 1886 destroyed the entire city. Now... He was then joined by three other men to form the fledgling Vancouver Police Department, where they started in a tent at the foot of Carroll Street as Vancouver was rebuilt from ashes. One of my favorite anecdotes from the history of the Vancouver Police was when it became a national scandal in 1955. Reporters from the Vancouver Daily Province were aware of controversy within the police department, but they couldn't get it published locally. So they went over to Toronto and published it in a tabloid called Flash. 
They alleged a series of high-level corruptions within the police department, specifically that gambling operations and casinos were buying off the police to being left alone, and those that weren't were being harassed. In other words, the Vancouver police were running a protection racket with local casinos. After this was alleged, a royal commission, the Tupper Commission, was launched and struck a public inquiry. The chief constable, Walter Mulligan, fled to the United States, <laughs> like just left Vancouver. Kind of like our city planners. Another officer apparently committed suicide rather than face the inquiry. But the Mulligan affair was probably the most dramatic of the many inquiries that have happened into Vancouver policing over the years. Now, this this particular era of policing was around the 1950s. This is when the Tupper inquired to police corruption and their protection racket began. It is objectively shocking and a little hilarious now that we've gotten some appropriate historical distance from it, but does perhaps reinforce the requirement that the police see some democratic oversight. I think you should see it a different way, Matthew. The reason they needed to take all these bribes was to increase their salary. So they just, right. they weren't being paid enough. So now they just need to take the money directly from the taxpayers without asking. Point taken. Not that anyone listens to us, because of course, as Melissa DiGenova so eloquently pointed out some time ago, democracy in Vancouver is dead. And on that note, we will sign off for the Camby Report and Ligon Boot Media, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Uh, thank you for listening. We will be back with you shortly following the ongoing race for city council and the mayoralty here in Vancouver and across the region. Good night. <laughs>